I get married, Nathan. <laughs> Careful now. <laughs> Exceptionally brilliant. For a lot of people, Mbappe has that quality. For the best Euro 2020 coverage, subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Car insurance is boring, but saving money bounces it into brilliance. Enter promo code SPORT and save €40 Euro off your car insurance with GetSetGo.ie. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Yeah, you're very welcome along. So we're chatting Sunday Papers. Very happy to say we have Dion Fanning with us, Associate Editor at The Currency, and we have Kieran Cunningham as well, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. Gents, you're very welcome. A very quick rumble through the front pages because, as you can imagine, it's all the same thing, really. And that was the picture, I think, on the front page of the Sunday Times sports section, which gave a lot of people some comfort before we got the official news that Christian Eriksen was okay. It's him being stretchered off yesterday in Copenhagen and it shows he was conscious. And that was, um, I think, a huge relief to a lot of people when that first surfaced online uh, yesterday. So saved. Ericsson collapses on pitch, but recovering after swift response from referee, teammates and medical staff is the uh, Sunday Times there. The more haunting picture in some ways on the Sunday Independent Christian Miracle. This was when he first collapsed and you can see well, it's hard to tell if his eyes are open or not, but his captain has his hand in his teammate's mouth and he's trying to make sure he doesn't swallow his tongue in those first few horrific seconds yesterday. And then as you look, this is front page and back page news. So the sun front page and there's a shot and it's just so upsetting. I mean, less so now, thankfully, but Ericsson's uh, partner, mother of his two children, Sabrina, being consoled by the Danish captain, Simon Kerr, on the left-hand side of the picture there. She's just so upset. I, you can only imagine what's going through there. Her mind, everybody's mind. Uh, Thank God he's alive is the headline on the front page. And then back page, play and pray for Christian. Ericsson shock, but game goes on. Uh, star fought for his life on the field. And on it goes, the mirror here then. Again, it's their front page story as opposed to just the back pages. Miracle on the pitch. And it's that picture of Ericsson leaving the pitch conscious. And then the other... I think, arresting photo. Probably the photo that will endure the longest. The headline is praying for you, Christian, here on the back page of the Irish Sunday Mirror, but it's the team standing around their teammate as he receives CPR. The majority of them looking away, understandably, Casper uh, Schmeichel is watching and uh, the captain, Kiara, is watching and there's the medics around holding up the white sheets. It's, I mean, it's almost reminiscent of a horse, isn't it, where they put up the screens to try and protect privacy and, and, and just the horror of the situation. So when you saw those white sheets going up, good, it's just um, it's just the most horrific few minutes. And on it goes like that. So, um, gents, that's where we'll start. The coverage of that is everywhere, as you can imagine. I don't know, were you watching the game? Did you join it as you realised what had happened? Um, I was listening to radio commentary I hadn't been watching and someone phoned me and I put on Talk Sport and David Connolly actually was on a co-commentary and David and his... Uh, commentator had to talk over the whole thing for 15 minutes and then they went back to studio and the way the talk sports studio were talking frankly I, I was I, I, having not been able to see what was happening I got the impression that he had died on the pitch that was the way they were talking about it they obviously hadn't seen the photo of um, Ericsson conscious and being carried off the pitch it was just a horrific chilling listen and then watching the video back that moment where the ball bounces off his knee in a way that does not happen to Christian Eriksen and, and you realise something so serious had happened. It was just um, utterly uh, shocking, chilling 20, 25 minutes. Um, 
I, I had it on. I, I'd watched the first game and I was actually in the garden and I came back in to see uh, Ericsson. I didn't know it was Ericsson to see a player being treated on the ground. And I assumed, I suppose, as you do, that it's a, um, a head injury or, or something like that. It looked, you know, I, And I noticed it a couple of times and I was like, OK, this is a, one of those long stoppages for a head in, in, injury. And I hadn't checked my phone or anything. And then you realize what it was. Uh, and I think, and I, 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 I you know, you, you mentioned it there, Joe, like, I think th- the most arresting thing and the most sobering thing about it was that circle of his teammates, because suddenly these professional footballers looked like young boys mm, mm. Um, uh, witnessing something that nobody should really have to see. Um and shocked and in in uh, in need of comfort, you know. You wanted to. They just looked like. Uh, and I thought, I thought, you know, it kind of struck me then, like you know, on the BBC, Alex Scott, who I thought was brilliant, uh, and I thought a lot of the coverage uh, on RT and BBC got the right tone in a horrible, impossible circumstances. You know, when people are going to say things that. Are are, are 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 that miss the mark they're going to you know they're filling air they're doing everything but i thought going back to that point alex scott said she had just texted her mother to tell her she loved her and i felt like these were when looking at the danish team i was like these are kids who need their who need who need their mother right now mm. uh and that was the thing that was so brutal about it as well and obviously there was uh you know that awful time waiting to find out. And again, I think so many people assume the worst. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was extraordinary. And it felt like a, a triumph when you heard that, you know, Ericsson was, was, had stabilized and, uh, and, you know, um, was conscious and all, and you know, and and that that's continue, you know, that's that uh, recovery or that progress or that stabilization is is ongoing. So that was mm. was something, but it was it was shocking, and I think all the more, you know, because it's at a at a major tournament and because of the whole, you know, it does have it just it is a it is something that is you know I know you know <laughs> children are watching it. There's lots of people sitting down to watch it, so it's a real. It was a very 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 shocking um event obviously yeah back page of the mail here for instance and I, a lot of the pieces across the paper are pretty similar they're just documenting what happened the events speak for themselves they say the denmark captain uh, simon kjar was the first player on the scene appeared to assist in preventing ericsson from swallowing his tongue and placing him in the recovery position and i read elsewhere that reportedly Kiara did start CPR. I didn't see that. I don't know if that's true, but he was certainly alert and on the scene and seemed to initiate the circle along with Kasper Schmeichel around Ericsson. The mail continues here. The fear was Ericsson's life was slipping away before a global audience of millions as his family and teammates watched on helplessly from the pitch. Uh, Kiara and Schmeichel organised distressed teammates to form a circle around their colleague linking arms around the stricken player to prevent cameras from viewing the attempts to resuscitate him. And then they go on to say, uh, Dion, that Gary Lineker later apologised with the BBC production team choosing to stay on the incident rather to revert immediately 
to the studio and, and that continues inside. Lineker defends BBC coverage of scenes. BBC widely criticised for not cutting away sooner after Christian Eriksen's collapse. Ian Wright obviously works for the BBC. He had tweeted, cut to the studio, FFS, several exclamation marks. Now, the BBC's line on this is that obviously the pictures themselves are controlled by UEFA and all around the world it's the same pictures being beamed out. I guess their point on not coming back to the studio sooner is that the game had still not been suspended. So the BBC's line is if the game is ongoing, then we're sticking with the pictures. So they say the stadium coverage is controlled by UEFA as the host broadcaster. As soon as the match was suspended, we took our coverage off air as quickly as possible. It did, Dion, pose a dilemma for TV producers everywhere as to what to do. Stick with the pictures, which at times were a bit intrusive, not least when his partner Sabrina came on the pitch. I mean, the wide shot could have been invoked, I think, at certain points. But to stick with the pictures and cover this event that is happening and like, you know, your first duty as a journalist is to actually cover what's happening or to make the decision to pull away completely and go back to studio. Did the Beeb get that wrong? Um, I'm, I'm like, I take Ian Wright's point and I, I take his his point of view uh, more than uh, a lot of people who are getting extremely angry uh, on Twitter. And I did, I did find just as an aside, like while everyone is kind of, you know, the, the cliche being about this is putting things in perspective. It didn't seem to bring any perspective to people on social yeah. media who want to, who want to kind of blame somebody for something, uh, no matter what the circumstances. Um, so I'm not going to, I think it, it, it seems like the, the, the wrong thing to do. Um, there, there were, uh, you know, clearly showing his, his wife, um, seems like the, seems like the wrong thing to do. And a wide shot would have been, um, what we're, we're more accustomed to on the, on the rare occasions when, when something like this happens. But, uh, it's a, there's a couple of things, you know, to, to be charitable. First of all, it is, it was in Copenhagen. I just wonder how much shock is going on there too you know people people's own like people the direct directors uh people their brains being scrambled to a degree potentially or mm. else they feel they took a different decision and thought we like this story has to be covered now there's obviously something more shocking and and chilling when you don't know the outcome and when you don't know and, you, and everyone as we said everyone uh, assume the worst at, at in those in those minutes, but I noticed that like the papers today all have those pictures. Um, is that different? Is that a, is that a, is that a different thing? They they run the pictures. Uh, obviously, a, a moving image is 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 more upsetting. Um, uh, I didn't watch it. You know, I watched it like someone I, I don't want to watch this. Right. Um, like and I kept an eye on it and I checked in on it, but I was like, I don't want to watch uh, all of this. But at the same time, I'm not going to. I, I think again, just given the circumstances, I think uh, they probably got it wrong. But um, given the circumstances too, maybe people's people aren't are trying to do what they think is there is the correct thing to do mm. in all the circumstances. But I, I take the, the point that, the, you know, I do think it would have been 
it would have been uh, it would have been less traumatic for people yeah. if if they hadn't if they had gone to a wide shot. Because I think people can be quick and hopefully Kieran, you're back there. Give us a hello. Hello. Mm, not bad. I've heard you better. I've heard you better. Give us a give us a one, two, three, four there. Uh, one, two. Yeah, you're probably not quite with us. We'll try and get you sorted out in one second. We'll get uh, back to Dion. I think, Dion, people are very quick as England go close with a header, still nil all there at Wembley. People are quick to say, oh, well, this was the media looking for ratings or being salacious. I mean, there was no benefit to any broadcaster there, really, to leave the pictures up. It's not going to boost their bottom line. It's not going to change their ratings going forward in any way. I think they are trying to do what's right. Like Henry Winter, for instance, says, as part of a broader piece on the whole thing, uh, there's so much to reflect on. There is some anger at television intrusion into the fear on the face of Ericsson's partner, Sabrina. Leave her alone, he says. Show some respect. Media moralising about other media is never a good or particularly sustainable look, but the judgment was wrong by the directors here. And maybe it was. I guess the papers today would argue that in light of the fact that he survived the pictures would they, take would, on a different quality. Not appear- if, if it had ended tragically, would those pictures not have appeared? Maybe they wouldn't have. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, but that's that's a question. But so that that, that is that I, I accept that that it's a slightly different circumstance. But I think if I wonder what pictures would have appeared now again, it's not the immediacy of it, but it is uh, it is it is a line that, you know, journalism and and television especially goes close to on, on a number of occasions. I I agree. I think showing his wife was was it was just it was too it was distressing. Like it was mm. a distressing um, picture to see. But I I uh, I just I I I do I I have I would just like to kind of try and see. Um, I I can can clearly say from from this from. 24 hours, nearly 24 hours later, that it was it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, I would like to try and have some understanding from yeah. uh, from some for somebody in that position. Uh, you know what what were they doing? Did they did they make a decision on this? Did they make it for the reasons you're suggesting? Are you know some people are suggesting in terms of ratings or whatever? Or is there um, is there another reason? Or is there essentially uh, a, a, just a, a sort of a, a panic <laughs> panic as well. I think a lot of it like is this, panic. It's in yeah. Denmark, like this is the, f- the fact about it too. It is so close mm. for everybody there. And it's, you know, it, it would be shocking if it was anyone. It's Christian Eriksson. Mm. You know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, you know, the key figure, a totemistic figure for, for Denmark. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a, for for anyone in Denmark, this is this is this is a truly truly shocking thing to to witness. Well, put it this way: nobody who was gone into sports journalism and gone into football and working on football TV uh, set out with the intention of documenting the minutiae of a man's death. You know, you've got to give everyone a pass in that respect. They just were not anticipating this at all. And so I think there was a degree of not being quite sure what to do. The match hasn't been suspended. You're taking the footage that you're being sent, and yeah, you can go to studio a bit earlier they probably should but in real time these decisions are just horrendously yeah and I, and I and i would counter that with the again as i mentioned earlier like there was i i think the coverage from the broadcasters in britain and ireland that i saw between the bbc and rte really got it got it right right uh, 
as much you know again with the proviso that this is a lot this is and they did the very sensible thing as well of actually going going off air um as quickly as they could too because there is nothing worse than um creating this platform for somebody just have to fill in time yeah um, uh, i read and, that lean brady was very emotional i didn't see that yeah he was and uh he, well, I, I think he, he yeah, he, Brady was, was very, very good. Jackie Hurley handled it very well, and as I said, Lineker and, and Alex Scott, I thought were um, were really superb. And um, and taking it, you know, talking about the you know the, the emotion of it. I think the fact that people are because you know there is the, and everybody falls back on it, um, understandably perhaps about you know it puts. It puts um, football into perspective <clears throat> uh, is the line people use, but actually they brought emotion to it. There yeah. was, and I think it was necessary at the time. Uh, not, not that I, that sounds like I think they were injecting it, but I think that was the reality. That's how everybody felt watching mm. it, mm. Um, and they took it beyond. But it doesn't matter, like Joe, really, whether they got it right. In some ways, I was going to say they took it beyond the cliche, but. And like you know, that's that's a good thing as a journalist. Like I think Sam Wallace does that very well. The piece in the Sunday Independent today, like he 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 writes, because um, I actually was thinking about the papers today when we were going to talk about this. I thought, well, the papers themselves, there's a lot of stuff that uh, for actual for newspapers, this demonstrates one of the reasons why they they struggle because it's 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 a story that moves on and moves so quickly um, that. It, it, you know, the actual newspaper itself is kind of obsolete. But Sam Wallace's piece is a, is a very good, powerful piece of writing on on on, on it. Um, and you know, again, as as you know, as as a journalist, that's something that like I like I admire in these circumstances. Like mm. the most important, you know, it does seem like like again. <laughs> To go back to the cliche that it doesn't it doesn't matter, but at the same time, it is important that people can express themselves uh, and bring something to it that goes beyond the simple kind of cliche, because that in itself can actually sound just a bit trite. Sure. Now you're welcome, Mac. We are reviewing the Sunday papers. England have just hit the post. England against Croatia, 28 minutes gone. England dominating the game. Thus far, it must be said, Croatia very poor in the sunshine at Wembley. We have Dion Fanning with us, associate editor at The Currency and hopefully Kieran Cunningham, chief sports writer with the Irish Daily Star. I think we've gone the old-fashioned way, Kieran. I think you're effectively on the phone. Can you hear us there? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah. Okay, good man. Sorry about all that messing around. Yeah, no problem. We won't dwell too much on the Christian Eriksen situation because mm. we've talked about it at length. One point we didn't actually uh, raise was the match going ahead that evening. As we understand it, the option was there to go midday this afternoon and the players, once they'd spoken to Eriksen, were adamant they were happy to continue. No one seemed to really step in and say, here, look, go back to the hotel, have some food, get a nice rest, come back tomorrow, you're all probably in shock, or certainly some of you are. What was your sense on the game continuing? I, I don't think it should have, and I, should, I don't think the decision should have been left to the players by any means, because how could they be in any kind of position to make that call after what they'd been through? And that, that applied to players on both sides. Like It was very traumatic for the Finnish players as well. Like the, There would have been such a build-up to them, the first ever game in a major tournament, and then to, to, for it to go that way. So I think UEFA should have made that call. And, and there's only times I think Henry Winter makes... Uh, 
you know, a point that I hadn't really thought about, you know, like when, when this is, is investigated, what happened to Eric, and like I have a cardiac issue, which a lot of people have, and mine wasn't detected like I was in my 40s, and I had it since birth. And a lot of people have these underlying issues that aren't detected, but it's very strange, you know, that, you know, he joined Inter Milan, Ericsson, he joined Real Madrid, he joined Tottenham back in the day, and there would be very comprehensive medicals that if there was an underlying issue with his heart, how this was never detected. And Henry has factored in that the players didn't have a proper pre-season, they have been flogged this season, you know, could that have taken a toll? Who knows? But I think there's a lot of things that people should look into now. Mm. Uh, to move on then to this story, which is just, I mean, I, uh, the taking of the knee, which was a big story after the death of George Floyd and the Premier League players first started taking the knee. And then I think just kind of became almost um, uh, missable for a good portion of the season because it was just part of the landscape and they do it and there was no re- real big deal or fuss or talk in the media. And now since fans have come back and it's been booed, has just exploded into a huge story. We'll get on to the English writing on the English situation in a moment, but it's quite interesting that even in Irish media now, the Irish player is taking the knee against Hungary being discussed at length. So we have various people here. Shane McGrath in the Mail, uh, Brenda Power, the Sunday Times main section, and Declan Lynch in the Sunday Independent main section. So to try and give a a brief synopsis, uh, Shane McGrath, very supportive of Stephen Kenny who described the booing of the Irish players taking the knee as incomprehensible. And the headline is, Kenny stands tall to show true leadership. So Stephen Kenny had said, the fact it was booed by the Hungary fans was incomprehensible, really. It must be damaging for Hungary with the Euros in Hungary. It's disappointing, doesn't reflect well on Hungary and the Hungarian support. And Shane McGrath says, in encouraging his players to take the knee, Stephen Kenny provided a compelling example of leadership. This is a man who, whatever the challenges facing him on the field, has shown a level of decency, compassion, intelligence and bravery off it. And that should stand in his credit. He gets that sport and politics mix and that the world is messy and sometimes doing the right thing is certainly the only thing that matters. Or not certainly, but just is the only thing. That matters. And then I guess the piece which caught a lot of uh, people's eyes, I suspect, Brenda Power. Brenda Power here in the Sunday Times main section. Uh, Players take the knee and lose their heads is the headline on her opinion piece. How very condescending of Stephen Kenny, Ireland's football manager, to decide that Hungary has been damaged by its fans, she says. She talks about the Irish players taking the knee and she does not approve. It's showy. Almost sanctimonious and sporting authorities should ban all political posturing. She says the Irish players, she describes the gesture as a witless one. It was a witless gesture. And basically she is talking about the origins of the knee. So she said five years ago, Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the US national anthem before a game because he said he would not stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people. So she says, so now when a player takes the knee in his own or another country, whether intended or not, he's making a statement of contempt for that country's anthem and national identity. And she says, uh, there was and remains perfectly good reason why black American sports people might kneel to disrespect the US national anthem. There is absolutely no reason why Irish sportsmen should kneel to disrespect the Hungarian nation or indeed our own. Uh, What's your take on uh, Brenda Power here, Kieran? Um, 
The first paragraph, she includes the phrase virtue, virtue signaling. And the second paragraph, she uses the word woke. And I think that tells you all you want to know, that there is a bingo card now with people. It's all part of the culture wars. And we should, they use the same language all the time to hit out the things they don't like. Virtue signaling, social justice warriors, woke, etc. And even Sweeney's piece on the back of the Sunday Depend is very good on this. And it's worth reading one paragraph in the middle of the piece. He says... A social media check reveals that almost all the kneeling sceptics belong to the tribe obsessed with and vehemently obsessed to, in quotes, wokeness. The enemies of Brexit, transgender rights, the perceived excesses, excesses of multiculturalism, etc. That may indicate why they find one brief gesture of solidarity against racism such an absolute torment. Because it's very, very hard on the singular issue of taking the knee, why people are so worked up on this, they're against it, and why, you know, you have England fans putting up the video clips on social media of them booing it on TV, filming themselves booing it on TV. But it's, part, it's because it's part of a wider uh, culture war. And very unusually, now, Dion wrote about this in the currency, the England team are now in a side that the England team were never really on before. Like, if you go back to the likes of Peter Shilton, Terry Butcher, you know, they would have been big fans of Margaret Thatcher, they would have been staunch Brexiteers, etc. But now this is a different England, an England that's very multi- multicultural in the background, and an England that has embraced what some call woke politics. And, but Brenda Perry is talking about the Irish situation here. What about the Irish players? But why should the Irish be any different? You know, there, there were four... Uh, against Hungary, Ireland played four players who were black or mixed race, which is the highest uh, number ever they played in a game. They played the first player, Obeni, who was born in Africa. If you go through the under-21 squad, the under-19 squad and the current senior squad, most of the exciting young players now, I would say 70-80% of them are of African origin. Like the, 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 and the, and the based, most of these players are based in England. So it's an issue for them as much as players that play in England. Of course it is. Mm. And it's a show of solidarity. Mm. One point, Dion, which jumped out of that, this piece. So Brenda Power is making the argument that Colin Kaepernick uh, took the knee, wouldn't stand to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people. So she says... Therefore, when a player takes the knee in his own or another country, whether intended or not, he's making a statement of contempt for that country's anthem and national identity. Uh, When does the Kaepernick trademark on taking the knee run out, I wonder? Just because Kaepernick gave that definition and explanation, it does not mean that that's what's happening now. That is to ignore the current explanation even given by the FA last night or by any of the players you talk to. So you kind of wonder when the Kaepernick trademark on the, on taking the knee runs out. Is it five years? Is it 200 years? Is it never? Like there's only so many gestures that you can come up with. Yeah, I don't like I don't think, as you said, Joe, at the beginning, like the, the taking the knee uh, in this iteration comes from, you know, the George Floyd killing. Mm. Um, and this is this is what it has been in, in response to. Um, so I, I don't see the. Uh, I don't see it, um, uh, and and I think now I think Brenda Power because like maybe maybe I'm wrong maybe she uh, she tuned in to watch uh, Andorra Andorra Ireland and Hungary Ireland like a lot of long suffering Irish football fans, um, or maybe she think you know because and so she's she's very aware of the context of the need she's very aware that all through the Premier League season. Uh, players you know players have been taking the knee because it isn't um 
where they are, you know, the, 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 the response in Hungary is, is, is the issue about it being in Hungary and the fact that especially in front of a, um, a full stadium, some of whom, some of the supporters were, you know, giving, giving Nazi salutes uh, mm. as, as the Irish players took the knee. So the, the knee is a, is a, taking the knee is a, is a, is a, a gesture in itself um, uh, and, a, and an anti-racism, you know, an anti-racism gesture um, that is that is separate, really, from disrespecting the Hungarian nation uh, or whatever. Like it, it just happens to be that um, the Hungarian nation has some has has a has a president who is going to be so who's who's going to be triggered um, enormously by 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 the by this gesture for 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 a number of reasons, and who has you know I think as Declan Lynch points out. Uh, hasn't been you know has used sport like many populists uh, have as as a you know for their own political ends as well hmm. so i i don't i don't see that as well like i like she makes a point in in the piece that you know there are other forms of racism and there's other racisms you know uh, that are in ireland that need to be challenged and i agree like that's not um <clears throat> that's not uh, up for debate like there is like irish people uh, um, are, are profoundly racist uh, in many ways, and um, uh, and I think you know with our own history um, of nationalism, like our own recent history of nationalism, which is as 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 shameful as anyone's recent history of of nationalism. Um, we 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 should be challenging ourselves at all times about all all our forms of prejudice. Mm. Um, but as Kieran says, like there are. Um, you know, this is a, a, a fantastic. You know, there is, you know, there is a, a great multiculturalism in the in the Irish uh, squad now and in the underage squads, and this is an important gesture. And I think it was, as as Shane McGrath said, and Shane McGrath's piece is great on this. Like it was, it was fantastic to have a manager like Stephen Kenny, and this does unite Stephen Kenny and Gareth Southgate mm-hmm. um, in that sense. To have to have managers at this point in time who are able to articulate that and who are able to uh, explain why this is important. And, you know, teams do have to, uh, <laughs> like national teams do have to kind of stand for something. They do have to, um, there is there is some there is something that they have to stand for. And and we are very fortunate to have a manager like Stephen Kenny who can actually articulate that. Mm. Yeah. You picked out Declan Lynch as well, Dion, and he was writing about the reaction to the Irish taking of the knee on the TV that night. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things in, in, in Declan Lynch's piece. One, he, he talks about the, just on that, on the politics of it as well. And, uh, you know, people who want to keep politics out of sport. And he says what they want, if they were honest, is to keep a certain kind of politics out of sport, the kind that might broadly be described as progressive or liberal, or as they would have it, Marxist. They seem happy enough with all other kinds of politics, which would be baked into the pie for decades. The England fans who are most fastidious about their game being infiltrated by political agitators have always been comfortable taunting the Germans about two World Cups and one, two World Wars and one World Cup. Uh, and I, it, on that, first of all, it struck me, it was very, it, I, 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 I don't know if you saw Michael Holding talking about this on Sky Sports the other day, talking about, um, he was very, very good on it. And he's been very, very good talking about racism 
since uh, George Floyd in particular, and he's written a book about it now, but he made the point how disappointed he was. And this comes in with the RTE panel, who I think Kevin Doyle said he, he admired the, uh, or he liked the gesture of respect that, that, that the Hungarians had done. Um, and, you know, there are other people then who will, uh, who will talk, you know, again, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the in, in, initial response before we were, crowds were back in stadiums was, was to, you know, you would hear people saying, you know, the classic, all, what about all lives matter, that one. And, and Michael Holding uh, was very strong on this the other day when he talked about the England cricket team who are, who are standing and are doing something else. And he said, you know, that is the equivalent. That is essentially uh, all, an all lives matter response. And he said, you know, he's not interested in the movement. He's not interested in this Marxist uh, background to the Black Lives Matter party. He is interested in the three words. He is interested in the three words, Black Lives Matter. And that is the uh, that is the point of it. And of course, as it goes on, there 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 are elements of it where it's going to seem like you know there are people for whom it will, it will matter more than it will matter to other people um but it strikes me that you can't say that it's both a hugely political gesture and say it's also tokenism mm-hmm. like it's one or the other yeah um and i think you know and i think it is extraordinary um and we might come on to the england stuff on it in a minute now yeah. because that, that is there is an extraordinary weight on that as well but i do think it is you know, in, on the in the Irish sense, it is uh, we ha- we have been fortunate to have the people we've had in in uh, in management and the players we've had this week. Well, to move on to the English uh, situation, then more specifically, there's some great pieces written about it. Uh, you picked out Barney Renee's in particular, and that's a it's a fantastic piece of writing. Just by the way, seeing as we're we're talking here in real time, this was the reaction at Wembley about 43 minutes ago. It's still nil all in this game, by the way. This was the reaction when the game kicked off and the players did take the knee. Temperature of around about 28 degrees at the start of the game as England's players take the knee. And the um, BBC didn't comment on that at all. They didn't want to interpret what that was. I think it was certainly booing and then a fair amount of cheers as well, more so than the Riverside. So that was what happened about 43 minutes ago. I mean, got all this talk about those three or four seconds, quite insane. So Barney Renee, Kieran, it's it ties in with your point you made about how the nature of the England team is changing. So the, 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 the team behind Renee's piece, he's talking about this intersection of politics and international tournament football, the 2021 version. And he says, for the first time, the England team and manager are decisively and unarguably of the left. For the first time, there is a schism between the player's manager and the team's core fan base, which is obviously more to the right. And he says of Southgate, Southgate felt like an accidental leader in 2016, an in-house fill-in. This has proved misleading over five years of quietly effective revolution. If he feels like an accidental politician too, then this current status is also simply a function of character. Southgate has listened to his players and he has followed his conscience. And he makes maybe the key point, Kieran, as to how all of this might play out. He says, football won't solve your problems, but nothing succeeds like success. And there's a genuine sense Uh, And if there is a genuine sense of unity out there, it is in the sense that everyone without exception needs a little escapism, a little collectivism and a reminder that life can also be a source of shared pleasure. Now, that is dependent on England winning 
and going well. And I think Barney Rene makes the point, Kieran, that if they win and if they go well and you can't help but warm to your national team doing well and scoring goals, then maybe a sense of unity does break out. Obviously, if this tournament goes badly for England and if they were to lose this game or not qualify for the knockout stages, then this knee thing will become far more divisive and more of a talking point and they were getting distracted and getting them ahead of themselves and all that kind of stuff. And that's almost like the, the, the pressure on these players as much as anything. Yeah. yeah because, uh, uh, Dion lived in London for quite a while. I lived in London for four years. And it's a, it's a country I'd be very fond of and, and, and I know Dion is as well. And I think it would be very necessary for England the way England is now to do well. Like as a country, not for football's world or anything, because it, it would need a, uh, it would be great for the for, for the people of, of of England to get behind a group like that because they are different to the groups that went before. And you have you know there's so much Euro '96 nostalgia going around because it was 25 years ago. You know that, that tournament was in England. Most of England's games this time around are in England, and the BBC went big into it before today's game. Uh, but that time, you know, that was that you know that was a Heidi Job culture. You know, it was it was uh, the Ladettes, Lads and Ladettes magazines. There was a lot of rubbish around that time, and it wasn't the time I enjoyed in London, I have to say. And it's a time now that's it's pretty grim in a lot of ways. But what has changed is the nature of the football team. I think that the way they're thinking and looking at the world. I think Terry Venables had a very different worldview to Gareth Southgate, for example. Jonathan Liu, in the wake of the Naomi Osaka thing, wrote a column saying press conferences should be got rid of that they've had a day. And I found the, the reaction from a lot of journalists was extraordinary. Like, it wasn't like there was a grand swell of journalists saying he had read the press conferences. It was one column, but he was pounced on and jumped on. There's a lot of us within the media are very reluctant to change the way we things we do and challenge the things we do. Gareth Southgate then, a week later, wrote a piece in the Players' Tribune, or he you know, collaborated with somebody to write it, it was 1,700 words, and it was miles better than anything you'd hear from a manager in a press conference. It was an extraordinary uh, statement of who he is, what his team are, and what they represent, and what they want to be. You know, I'd urge anyone to get it out. And it's, I, I don't remember a manager ever putting anything like that out there before which makes this moment for England very interesting. Mm. Dean, what's your take on the English situation? We've talked about the Irish situation. Um, well, I think England's situation is is hugely interesting right now. Um, like, it is extraordinary to see the pieces uh, today from, you know, Oliver Holt, David Walsh, Barney Roney, lots of people writing about, um, you know, how important taking the knee is um and the fa put out a statement overnight about it and asking the supporters to understand this and kieran's right the players tribune piece uh by gareth Southgate was excellent i would say that he also spoke brilliantly um about it as well last week uh slightly undermining kieran's point that you know Nobody should, you know, we, we don't want to hear from people in, in press conference, but he did actually speak very well about it and he does articulate it very well. Um, but I think there's a, a really significant thing happening. And uh, I did write about this in the currency this weekend. Um, for generations, like I lived in England for 20 years, but I also covered uh, you know, England at, at tournaments. Um, and it is a splendid thing to do to, uh, to cover England at tournaments because there is nothing as entertaining as, or there was nothing as entertaining as the witnessing the the clash of egos, 
the friction between the players and uh, and the and the media um, and you know the, 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 the sycophancy in one hand, just the entire the entire organism kind of moving through foreign foreign lands um, and feeling slightly put out about this in many instances. And that, that is a kind of, you know, the story I often tell is of in San Etienne in 1998 uh, after England-Argentina. Um, and when the Argentina players came out after this incredible game, one of the greatest World Cup games, uh, certainly of, of that tournament, one of, one of the great World Cup games. And they were on, about six of them came out, these beautiful um, Argentinian players, Batistuta, Ortega, Veron, these stunning, uh, you know, gods, um, and they're all in, uh, exuberant, and they'd beaten England, and their media were there in a kind of uh, pen in front of them, and as they spoke, it was I, it was about midnight because it was you know the game had gone to penalties and everything, and as they spoke and celebrated, you could hear this rumbling discontent building uh, from the English journalists, and finally one of them snapped and was like, "F off, f off." You know, it, we've got deadlines. We've got deadlines, <laughs> and sort of screaming at them. You know, screaming at these beautiful, beautiful men to to clear the stage on at their uh, on their finest hour. And they just looked at them with kind of contempt. But it was that was that was the, the world. You know, there was a kind of there was a harmony, an ugly harmony in the worldview of the English media as it was the England supporters. Uh, as they were, and um, you know, unfortunately, continue to be, and the England players to a degree, in that everything, the world to them was a place to be frightened of. It was a fearful and terrifying place. The the players were presented to the media in a way that I remember being struck by that very first World Cup. The way they were presented to the media, they dealt with the media was different to the way other countries dealt with the media, where the players would walk out and talk to anybody. The English players were presented to one element, one group of media, then ushered over to another group and protected. And the world, they were given this message all the time, the outside world is somewhere, is a fearful and dangerous place where if you put one, if you step out of line, if you say the wrong, wrong thing, you're finished. And then amazingly, when they stepped out onto the pitch in a World Cup or a European Championships, they played as if, if they stepped out of line or they said, did the wrong thing, they were finished. And the... The supporters, their fear presented itself as anger and hatred, and the media then was turned against turned against the the team at any opportunity, and that went on. And I told the story um, in the in the currency piece as well about you know one, at the very beginning of this, a story an English journalist told me about Sir Alf Ramsey after they didn't qualify for 1974 World Cup. The war, you know, eight years after winning the World Cup, and a journalist, uh, um, one of the senior journalists at the time, just leaning over to him at a press conference and saying, "Sir Alf, it's time to go," you know, mm -hmm. and this is the World Cup winner, and this was the power they had. That power has diminished. The media power and influence and sense that they could uh, affect change in the England team has has diminished as their own power has gone. Um, their attitude to the England team changed, I think, during the time of of Roy Hodgson, who was very good, at, if if not much else, he was very good at uh, managing expectations and lowering expectations. And the players then as well have have become 
And, you know, and the, the most explicit manifestation of it isn't just in the taking the knee. It's in the, it's in the, you know, like, and Kieran, when Kieran talks about the culture wars, like you have in the England, in the England squad, like the, the person who has done more good than the, the, like his own prime minister during, you know, for, for most of the pandemic in Marcus Rashford, who was taken on, who was challenged time and time again by uh, Boris Johnson government before they realized, actually, we just now have to agree with what Marcus Rashford is doing. Yeah. So these are extraordinary, an extraordinary group of players um, with, 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 who, who, who don't have fear. You see it in Raheem Sterling when he called out, he called out the race, you know, the racism in the media. You, you have these players who aren't frightened anymore. Mm. And that is hugely significant. And it's not just hugely significant in terms of what they're doing with, with taking in, taking the knee. It's also hugely significant, I feel, in terms of how they're going to play in this tournament. Yeah, well, it's uh, going to be very interesting. They're nil all at the minute. We have Dion Fanning with us and Kieran Cunningham. A short break. Uh, we'll get to a few of your texts on this issue. And then uh, Paul Kimmage has been talking to Jim Bulger about doping in racing. We'll touch on that next. We have Dion Fanning with us, associate editor at The Currency. Kieran Cunningham as well, chief sports writer with the Irish Daily Star. Just one last text on the uh, knee and the booing. I think I know some people have had their fill of this conversation. I get that as well. Frank, who's from London, living in Cork. He says, lads, ultimately the problem with the knee is its meaning has changed since the death of George Floyd. It's allowed people to project various interpretations on what it stands for and rationalise their booing. I totally agree with that, Frank. Um, but like some of the coverage, for instance, you know, at the bottom of David Walsh's piece, you have Lawrence Fox, uh, the actor who really kind of came to prominence on Newsnight a while back. And he set up his own political party, party now. Just with the uh, taking of the knee, he has said, I'm embarrassed to be British. I hope any team but ours wins in any future sporting endeavour. Millionaire woke babies protesting inequality on 200 grand a week. We deserve everything that's coming. Weak men, weak you so know, can so I just say say something on that? Yeah. Because it is uh, um, it is one of the kind of things about it. I, I do think there is, and it goes back to a lot of these pieces, like the, the failure to appreciate uh, racism is something that nobody who isn't who hasn't suffered from racism can really understand. And I like, you know, we can be empathetic and we can give our support, but like those uh those kind of ideas and those comments and David Walsh, you know, quotes the, uh, you know, a, a conversation between James O'Brien and a caller on, uh, on LBC as well. And, you know, they're similar along similar lines. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it is, it is it, like, it reminds me in some ways of when, um, during the P Patrice Evra, Luis Suarez, um, affair, uh, when Liverpool fans were booing Patrice Evra, and and they would insist that they weren't um that this wasn't racism they were booing him for what he had done to luis suarez luis suarez now the fact that he you know he he had luis suarez was guilty of racism and had racially abused patrice ever and that was the cause of it uh seemed to be like now that was a very tribal thing but again this is a tribal in a different way but that seemed to be lost on the people mm. who who in many other circumstances consider themselves the most uh you know yeah. righteous of anti-racists no i get and that there is there is a similarity in this in that people you have to understand uh and i think and again and this goes back like you know you have to understand um um all these you know all, all the all the footballers 
you know, who are earning whatever money they're earning. They've all had lives uh, um, prior to being footballers. They all have family members uh, who have lives and they all have experienced, you know, the black players will all have experienced racism um, not just since they became football, not just since before they were footballers, but since they've been footballers. And if you can't kind of grasp that, if you can't think, right, I must, I must, uh, try and sort of understand where what what this means and i think george like the killing of george floyd did start that conversation and did start people thinking about that in terms first of all in terms of of racism in america and you heard so many uh you know black people in america talking about that moment when they have to have the conversation with their children to explain like what you know the, the racism they're going to to endure um, and why they're why they're hearing the things they're hearing, um, but we you know those those things are happening. I've you know you hear the most shocking racism on the streets of Dublin, um, like we're 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 a country that is so um, far you know that we're 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 thirty or forty years I think even further behind where other countries are in terms of actually uh, education, um, and you know I you know that that's something that needs to be address as well but i just it is just a, a kind of a shocking failure of understanding when you when you read those kind of yeah, takes willful or otherwise the reason i meant i mentioned his quote though well one it's in the paper but two like he says they're protesting inequality and he's saying well they're on uh, lots of money a week therefore who are they to protest inequality i think that you know serves to the, the the point that the listener was making that you can almost project various meanings on this like brenda Parra saying it's not about racism it's about overpaid professional sportsmen delivering lectures to their fans to feel good about their own pampered existences like uh, it, there's a very simple line here and, and, and it's amazing it's become so complicated and i think that is part of the problem there's the george floyd death there's a global moment of talking about racism and the US one is specific to police behaviour and brutality there. In the UK, they're tearing down colonial statues, but it, it, the, and it is linked initially to Black Lives Matter and then the, bla the Marxism stuff comes up and so they separate themselves from that very simply and it just becomes a very simple gesture. Nothing more than that, that racism is bad. It's no more complicated than we are taking a knee against racism. This is, a, you know, an industry where there's 92 professional clubs and how many managers are black. You know, that is systemic racism laid bare and, and manifesting itself at its most obvious. And that is all it is. And so to be this trying one, to draw any yeah. other meanings or inject any other meanings into it, I think it is just willful, willful uh, I don't even know is, it, is ignorance the word but it, you're doing it willfully like the FA statement last night couldn't have been clearer and I don't even think they released that statement thinking it would stop the booing today I think they just released it to almost in a preemptive way because they were going to hear the same old gibberish and LBC about what it you know it stands for this and it stands for that and they were just trying to say in clear terms it's not linked with anything it's not linked with BLM it's just a simple racism is bad that's all this is well, it is the Michael Holding line that he's concerned, what he's is interested in are the three words, Black Lives Matter. That's it. Mm. Like, that's what he believes taking the knee represents, that Black Lives Matter. And for too long, that hasn't been the case. Yeah. And I think for people who, and I, I, I take that point that people can project whatever they want. And that doesn't, that's, you know, we've seen this before in other situations. We've seen it with, with, with Donald Trump. We've seen it with Brexit, where people say, oh, we must understand 
uh, why people voted for Donald Trump. We must understand why people voted for Brexit. They never really want to understand why people didn't vote for Donald Trump or why people didn't vote for Brexit. But it does come back to that thing that, that not everybody who voted for Brexit is the Will Self line. Not everyone who voted for Brexit is a racist, but every racist voted for yeah. for Brexit. And uh, and not everybody, maybe not everybody who's booing, taking the knee or who has sympathy with booing is, is certainly who has sympathy with it. Not everybody is a racist, mm -hmm. but every racist is booing it. We got to move on because we spent too much time in that as well. Apologies, I know that dragged on a, a touch. Um, Racing's dirty secret, Kieran. This is in the Sunday Independent. This is Jim Bulger. Uh, Jim Bulger, very successful racing trainer. Jim Bulger gave an interview. Uh, last year to Dara O'Cohur in the Irish field and uh, it caused a storm where he said the number one problem in Irish racing is drug cheats who are stopping the sport from being a level playing field. It's quite interesting that uh, Paul Kimmich here has interviewed Jim Bulger four hours down in Jim Bulger's home. He talks to Dara O'Cohur about that interview last year and Dara says that it was really only at the very end where he turned to Jim Bulger and said, is there anything more you want to say? It was a complete fluke, says O'Cohur. So Bulger clearly really wanted to say this and he was determined to say it in the piece here. He says to Paul Kimmage, really, he had wanted to say it for a while, but he wanted to do it after a bit of success. So it didn't look like sour grapes and he had a certain kind of platform. That was why he did it when he did it. Although he does say he, he was slow to get to grips with the problem in the sport, maybe for 20 years or so, he's um, been au fait with it. I wouldn't say there's a huge amount new here in what Jim Bulger is saying, but they tease out some issues. So, for instance, Paul Kimmage, have you had any support since the interview? He says very little, but I can understand that because of the fear factor with the ruling body. Trainers don't want to stick their heads above the parapet. Paul Kimmage says Aidan O'Brien did. And Aidan O'Brien had said Jim's entitled to his opinion. Sport is very clean. Everyone's doing a very good job. And Jim Bulger says, he, I think he also said I should name names. Paul Kimmich says, yes, he did. Jim Bulger said, I'm not that big a fool. I don't travel to Dublin very often. I don't want to be going up every day for three weeks to the High Court. So they go on to talk a bit more about the issue. Jim Bulger says at one point, Kieran, uh, they can rest assured I know who they are. And if I had any responsibility for rooting out cheats, I'd have them rooted out in six months. How, says Paul Kimmich, Jim Bulger, because I know who they are. And then Paul Kimmage makes the point that Lil Hillier, she works for the IHRB, had told the examiner recently that they had been working with you for some time. Jim Bulger says, I had one meeting before the Irish Field interview and one after with Hillier. Yes, with Hillier. And that was meant to be confidential. It turns out Jim Bulger thought it was meant to be confidential, he says, but it suited them to break that confidence because it was known at that stage they were doing precious little about it. And her defence was, well, we've had meetings with him and we're making progress. But as far as I was concerned, I had made it clear that the meetings were confidential. And uh, he says, um, I'm not sure they're serious about it. The samples might have been taken, but if they were tested properly, they would have had results by now. And he says, I've had great support from my staff who know I'm 100% right and they know more about it than I do because they're right in the mix. They have contact with other stable staff and they're closer to the coalface than I am. So that's just a, a general sense of this two-page interview with Paul Kimmage and Jim Bulger. I mean, Kieran, you'd have to say it is absolutely explosive, as it was last year, that one of the most high-profile trainers in this sport is coming out and saying that this is the number one problem. The authorities are not doing enough about it. And he knows who's cheating and who's not cheating. I mean, if this was 
hurling, GA, rugby, soccer, you name it, any of the big sports. I mean, this would be stop the presses. It hasn't really been like stop the presses and racing. It's not like there's been this sudden, hang on everyone, Jim Bulger has said this, we need to get to the bottom of this, we need to root this out. Racing just kind of carried on, I suppose, a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Like, because He's a very unusual figure to be a whistleblower. And, you know, he's 79 years old. He's been, uh, he's nothing really to gain from it, you know, other than maybe peace of mind for himself that he loves the sport and he wants to see it clean, clean up its act a bit. But, you know, as in terms of personal gain, uh, he, he, he's, you know, he's actually getting a lot of hassle and grief over it. Like, uh, at, at, at his stage of life, a lot of people wouldn't want that. So he deserves huge credit for coming out and confronting it. I think, it, you know, the, it was covered uh, with Darrow Crohur's interview in the Irish Field, but the Irish Field is very much a niche publication, you know, for racing fanatics. So it's good that it's across two pages in the Sunday Independent, and it's hitting a broad, you know, a general sports audience and a general audience, um, uh, you know, j- 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 who just you know go through the Sunday papers, whatever. But um, racing has always been a kind of a, a murky netherworld, you know. That there's so much that goes on within racing that wouldn't be accepted in other sports. You know, even the way it's tied in with gambling, that bookies go on TV and to give their tips for horses. And how does that make any sense? Like, why would a bookie tell you what horse he thinks is going to win? Mm. But, but this is a... And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that, um, you know, insider, which would basically be regarded as insider trading in other businesses. It's part of the course in racing. Yeah. You know, they just the trading of information, and th- there has been. If you look at the history of, of racing, there has been a tolerance of cheating. There has been a huge tolerance of so-called betting coups, which are often a different form of cheating. So doping is just another form of cheating. But I, I often wonder as well, like why is doping always such a big issue? Like it's right, doping stories are covered. Doping stories are big in sport. It's blatant cheating. It's been going on a long time. There was doping in the ancient Olympics, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. But there's other big stories that m- most of the sports media don't cover, like Daniel Kinahan's involvement in boxing. It was a year ago this week since Anthony, uh, Tyson Fury given credit for prematurely for Ranger Anthony Joshua fight. I thought a year on there might be a few pieces around looking at where things are, what's happened. There hasn't been anything. You know, the, it didn't run in the Irish edition of Sunday Times today, uh, but it ran the UK edition, a big piece by David Walsh and Josh Taylor, calling them the best boxer in Britain, ahead of Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury. It doesn't mention that he's an MTK boxer and the questions around them. And I just wish the same rigour was taken to a massive global story like that as it's taken around doping stories. Because those stories matter as well, and arguably they matter more. Yeah, that's fair. Dion, I don't know how on top of this story you were last year when Jim Bulger first spoke or not, but what, what do you make of these comments today? I mean, it's not... <laughs> he certainly hasn't shied away from what he said last year. If anything, he's doubled down, and he doesn't think that the samples they've taken, he says... I mean, this, that's the huge accusation here, and in fairness to the IHRB, they deserve the right of reply on that one. He He's arguing... The samples weren't tested properly now because by now they would have had the results. It's not entirely clear in that piece. I, I suspect here because he, he's campaigned about hair testing. So there's various ways, obviously, to test. And hair testing allows you to, in a way that blood and urine don't, they can provide a detailed historical record of drug use in a horse, including anabolic steroids. So in some cases, years after medication has been administered, 
Like that's the that's the real advantage here. If you take a hair sample, you could find evidence years after a steroid might have been taken. And I know the IHRB said late last year that over 60 drug tests on hair samples had been taken from horses since the summer and had there had been negative uh, findings. And I know that the IHRB certainly on their website make the point that they have put hair testing in ahead of most other countries. So they're standing over their approach to this whole thing. But Jim Bulger is very sceptical about that. And that's the, at the heart of this issue. But like I said, I don't know. Were you on top of this last year, Dion, or what you make it today? Um, no, I wasn't. Okay. Uh, I think I think the most interesting or one of the most interesting aspects of it is this idea of Jim Bulger, um, a 79 year old uh, trainer, wanting to talk about this and being driven by this uh, kind of burning desire to to do something about this. Um, I think it's it's a I, like how much traction it's going to get um, is an, is an interesting point because like there is one exchange where uh, Paul Kimmich says to him the penalties for using prohibited substance are pretty laughable uh, when he asks him what why wouldn't you do it and he said. I wouldn't do it because it's cheating and I'm not a cheat. I know there's an attitude in racing that's all about winners, fair means or foul, but I think there has to be an element of decency in the whole thing. Mm. You have to have some self-respect and I know I have right on my side. Um, now that, you know, that is uh, a, a fantastic mission statement, but I just, I don't know, as, as Kieran has said, like racing, there are so many elements of horse racing that I think people have sort of priced in various uh, elements of of cheating, if you like, or yeah. you know, like racing has a you know the non-triers rule. And sorry, like, sorry to interrupt you. Even last year, there was a very high-profile case where there was doping, but it was doping to ensure that horses lost. Yeah, and it was only discovered on the back of betting patterns. So I mean, I, like, like what it, other sport? Yeah. What other sports? feels it has to kind of, you know, what it needs to be most on alert for is people actually not trying hard enough. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And uh, and you don't have a sizable quotient of the participants, i.e. the horses, able to whistleblow for themselves. You know, they're powerless to, as, as to what's injected into them or what they're given. Yeah. So, like, it, it, just, it just brings in the, the uh, again, the sort of, you know, question of what do you consider, what do you consider cheating? And if this is a sport that... Uh, um, has so many elements of it where you could, you know, you don't know what you're actually, you know, the the great, the the great crusading line about about doping has been, you know, is, is, what am I watching? Mm. Like, what am I looking at here? Is yeah. what I is is what I'm looking at genuine? Well, how many horse races a year are people looking at things? Who people who know about horse racing are looking at and going, um, well, this isn't this isn't genuine for many 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 reasons and again it is it is as much to do with people or horses or jockeys or whatever not trying as it is trying too hard so um it is uh i just i just wonder how like i think it's a fascinating portrait of, of jim bulger mm. um and you know but i just wonder how much uh traction it's going to get well i'll put that question to you Kieran, how much traction it gets. By the way, Paul Kimmage asked him, you're 79, why do this now? He says in response, uh, it'd be like you coming down the Champs-Élysées on a Sunday in July knowing that a fellow in front of you is full of dope and you're going to be second and on the other side of the podium, that's not easy to take and if you're half a man, you're going to stand up for yourself. So I'm standing up for myself and for the trainers who are playing the game straight. As to Dion's point, Kieran, like I said, 
if this was any other sport, someone of this stature saying these things, it, it would just be stop the press's territory. And that wasn't the case last year. He is still saying these things. Do you think this gets much traction? Like this really should be the talk of at the races tomorrow. It should be the talk everywhere. I'm sure we'll come back to it here and off the ball again. We've covered the various um, doping stories as they've arisen. But like, where are the other people rowing in behind Jim Bulger? Like, it's hard to believe that this man with his um, clear intelligence and his experience, it's hard to believe he's way off the mark here. And yet, who else in racing is coming out to support him over the next week? Because yeah. these, these stories often become a story about the media as well, Joe. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, 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 you I don't... You know, Bar, Bar Paul and uh, David Walsh and a couple of others, few, few journalists who cover cycling, Wanted wanted to touch doping and cycling. Yeah. How many bo- uh, journalists who cover boxing have touched the Kinahan story, even after Panorama, after Tyson Fury shout out to Kinahan, etc. So it's the same now. Like uh, you know, there has to be a willingness for the racing media and the racing authorities to go after that. And I haven't seen any signs of that. So because of that, you would you would think it won't get traction. Yeah, and that's staggering, really, isn't it? Mm. Well, yeah, like when you think about the scale it's of the story and, and the accusations, like you know, it's it's happening with so many big stories that so many people just want to be there for the party, and they want to be there to celebrate, and they don't. And access is huge. Like I know with the boxing story, there's so many people. The, the, the relationship between promoters, management companies, TV companies, and the media, you know, is so it's so tied in in terms of access and getting ringside tickets, etc. But there's so many who don't want to rock the boat. And I think that goes. Uh, I think racing has that kind of cosy relationship as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, it's it's must read really. Page twenty twenty one, Sunday Independent. Jim Bulger is reiterating all the things he said to Dara O'Cahir of the Irish Field last year, and uh, it says next week there's a Jim Bulger and the world that made him feature. So I suspect that's more of a general interview about Bulger with uh, Paul Kimmage and Jim Bulger. But we'll see where this goes over the next uh, couple of days. Racing's Great dirty secret is the headline. Uh, clock's way against us. Uh, Kieran of the GAA, Killian O'Connor playing his 100th game. Mick Foley's great piece on Killian O'Connor's approach to the game. Really enjoyed it. Everything from, you know, when he's practising his freeze ahead of a double match, he's got his headphones on with Come On You Boys in Blue blaring into his ears and it's just his achievements in the game are probably underrated. And then there's the likes of Joe Brawley, Colin O'Rourke looking back at last night's matches. It's hard to make sense of them, especially the Tyrone performance. Anything catch your eye in the, the GAA? Uh, well, the, the Killian O'Connor thing is interesting because, you know, from today's game with Clare, it looks like he might have picked up a significant injury mm. or an injury. And because this championship has been run off in such a tight time frame, like even a month out, could, you know, could could cause you serious problems in terms of, of what's coming down the tracks. And because, you know, there's so many people, this cliche that was always thrown around that he's not a marquee forward, I have no idea what that means. But, you know, just Mick Foley throws in a few of the lines that, you know, when there was criticism in 2017, O'Connor wasn't delivering enough scores in play. He ended up kicking three crucial scores in the All-Ireland Final. Of the 540 he scored last year in the Championship, 540 is an extraordinary figure, but 512 of that was from play. Mm. And there was a time when his work rate without the ball was questioned. Last year, he had the most turnovers of any um, Mayo player in the Championship. So I think he's one of those that you'll only really see the value of him when he isn't there. And if Mayo go into the Championship without him, I think people will suddenly be saying, God, I realise now how good Killian O'Connor is. Yes, absolutely agree. It's a really interesting piece. He seems to be just militant in his preparation. On the um, action last night, so 
Donegal pretty conservative and they got men behind the ball and it was a real kind of challenge match feel not not played at a, a fantastic pace but Joe Brawley talking here about Tyrone 48 years since Tyrone conceded five goals in a game and by half time in Killarney Kerry already had five Tyrone men running changing direction diving to block a shot that never came backpedalling bumping into each other grasping for thin air as though they were playing invisible opponents the pace of the annihilation slowed a little in the second half but he says Kerry were awesome so much chemistry so much skill variation finishing power a forward line of two footed players constant clever movement on and off the ball what do you read into that Tyrone performance it was bizarre I I read nothing into either of those games though there was there's such such a strange scenario in that it looked likely uh, a bar you know if if there was a Dublin and Tyrone win you would have a league final otherwise there was going to be no league final so you were semi-finals uh, a strange situation where you have a semi-finals and probably not a final. So you look at Donegal, Michael Murphy was already out injured, then they rested Neil McGee, Paul Brennan, Jamie Brennan, Patter Mogan, Owen Dan Gallagher, then Oren McNeilish and Stephen McManaman went off injured in the first half. Despite that, Dublin won by only four points and Donegal had a great goal chance save, so they could have come within a point. And Donegal were, were only good through the gears. They Donegal a championship in two weeks the game meant absolutely nothing to them. Um, so one of the things that struck me though was Dublin. Dublin now are very li- like where Spain were. Uh, you know, when Spain won the two European Championships and won the World Cup, this stuff started about uh, um, Spain being boring to watch. And Joe Brawley kind of just touches on that near the end. Mm. You know, the perfect fo- football this good is difficult to appreciate. Dublin were their boring best. And they do know, you know, because uh, there was one moment in the first half that uh, Donegal forward Niall O'Donnell took a shot from the right wing with his right foot, which is a low percentage shot. He kind of trying to curl it over the outside of his right boot. And he kicked it wide and Patrick McBride was inside him and he looked to give him a bit of an earful. And I'm just thinking, a Dublin player will never take that shot. You know, they haven't taken that shot in seven years. But now it's all about working the percentage to keep the ball so long until they get it round the D, and, uh, you know, Conor Callan and Kieran Kelly are so strong that burst through and fisted over the bar or somebody would just pop it over. And, you know, you go back to the 2017 All-Ireland final, eight minutes into injury time, they were a point up and they got a line ball and they kept the ball for 90 seconds, 22 passes after an incredibly difficult game. The control, it's all about control now with Dublin, which is the old Joe Schmidt byword, that everything is now so controlled. And control... Can't be sometimes isn't great to watch. I prefer the madness of Kerry to watch. Now Kerry, you know, Joe Brawley talks about them scoring six goals. It's the the most goals Toronto conceded in such a long time. But three weeks ago, Kerry conceded four goals to Dublin, three in the first half alone. So Kerry have this kind of glorious madness going on that makes them far more enthralling to watch. But if you're putting your money, who's going to win the All Ireland? You still back Dublin. Yes, I'd agree with that. Joe Brawley concludes his piece saying Dublin were at their boring best. Football this good is difficult to appreciate and there is a bit of that with Dublin. Fellas, we're out of time. Uh, thanks so much. Really enjoyed that chat. Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. Dion, thank you so much. I, I wonder, did you realise you were giving up the England game when you agreed to do this? Well, I, I, I did, but I've, I've been watching it, Joe, so uh, okay. I have been watching it. And also, you know, I... Uh, I, was, I was very grateful when when we lost Kieran earlier. 
I, I did, you know, I did. You know, is there anything I can do to help? Personally, I'm not, a, you know, very technical. But I was like, let's get this. We need them on the lines. I know we're going to be talking about GAA, <laughs> and uh, I was, my, you know, things. It was a, a terror in me at that point. <laughs> um, but anyway, I agree with everything Kieran said there. About, uh, good, good. Too early good. in the summer for me to check in with Listen, GAA. League is league. You're not reading anything into the league. A seasoned veteran like you knows better Congress, than that. And then you just move on. You wait for the championship. Yeah. That's my that's that's my rhythm. Kieran Cunningham, who's uh, I mean, based on your Wi-Fi, Kieran, this this uh, you know economy we're trying to create now and to entice uh, workers, we have a way to go. Yeah, it generally works okay. I have no idea what happened today. So a bit frustrating. Thanks no. for sticking with it. No, no worries. You came through loud and clear in the end. Uh, Kieran Cunningham, chief sports writer with the Irish Daily Star and the Unfunny. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. That's the uh, paper review for this afternoon. Done. It's like getting married, Nathan. <laughs> Careful now. <laughs> Exceptionally brilliant. For a lot of people, and Beppe has that quality. For the best Euro 2020 coverage, subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Car insurance is boring, but saving money bounces it into brilliance. Enter promo code SPORT and save €40 Euro off your car insurance with GetSetGo.ie.